This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. I'm joined by my co-host and, again, wonderful sister, Tessa King. Just a reminder, please join us on our Facebook, and please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Today, we have a story which is one of tragedy, but it is also a story of perseverance. Tyson Steele was homesteading in the Alaskan wilderness, snowed in, really, miles from his closest neighbor. The closest road was 45 miles away. Without a snowmobile slash snow machine for you Alaskans, he made the mistake of throwing cardboard on his fire, and a portion of that cardboard, once lit, traveled through the chimney and deposited itself on the roof of the home he was living in, a pseudo-Quonset hut made of one-by-fours and plastic. It burned his home to the ground, leaving him without shelter in the middle of the winter and no way to leave safely. Wait, wait, before you start, would you say that this man has nerves of steel? Uh, okay, you can tell the story now. Maybe he has some steel reserve. A steely demeanor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He didn't seem quite that edgy. Maybe he's stealing himself for the right moment. Maybe. <laughs> he, he uh, I don't know, he steals away into the dark Alaskan winter, maybe? Okay, well, I'm dying to hear the story. All right, well, we will begin this episode with a quote from Tyson from KUTV, as viewed on YouTube. In a minor bit of hastiness, I was cold, and I woke up about one or two in the morning. Cold, and I knew I had to stock the fire, and the coals had died down. I should have built it properly, but instead, I just threw in a big piece of cardboard and some wood and lit the cardboard on fire, and it cooked up a fire real quick. But the problem is, it sent a piece of cardboard up the chimney, and it doesn't have a spark arrestor, which stops things from going up the chimney, and it landed on the roof, which is plastic, and it ignited. I didn't know it until I was going back to bed, and the plastic started dripping from the ceiling, like on fire, dripping balls of fire. I tried to put it out as quick as I could, but it spread so quick that I realized I just got to grab a few things and get out of there. I got to grab my dog. Dog and survival gear. That was my first thought. That was your first thought or his first thought? No, it's his first thought. <laughs> okay. That just sounded like an add-on from you. <laughs> no, it was actually something he said. Um, Tyson Steele was 30 at the time our story takes place in 2020, starting in December. Um, he's a free-spirited man who had been doing his fair share of traveling before he decided to settle in off the grid in Alaska. So what part of Alaska is off the grid? Did it specify? I'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> So his past travels took him to China for a teaching experience, to Mexico, and he had lived in a shipping container in Utah with his dogs. He had three dogs at that point in time, and he even was growing his own food at that point. Um, He'd also spent a bunch of summers and time as a dockhand in Juneau processing fish. Um, He did all of this traveling after college, and he also achieved a master's degree in English. Hmm, Good for him. Yeah. So when asked about survival... In an article by Ken Marsh, he stated, quote, I'm not exactly trained. I've just always been in the outdoors, in the outdoor industry. So unofficially trained. Unofficially trained. I think he's a smart guy. His first job was working in a gear shop for five years, where he became familiar with outdoor survival equipment, including fire starting equipment. He said that he watched a lot of YouTube videos. He said he liked to, quote, interface with the environment directly to survive. 
Steele had also practiced the art of lighting fires multiple times in multiple different circumstances. So in the event that he needed to start one, he would be prepared. But not arson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't prepared for this at all. So he had planned on moving to Alaska with a very special 110-pound chocolate lab named Mm. Phil. Phil. I know. I love you. (laughs) Isn't that the sweetest thing ever? I love it when dogs have people names. Me too. So Phil was a very happy, well-mannered dog whom he loved very much. And this was the perfect travel companion. And also, Phil's ears always stood on end when Steele said the magic words, let's go for a hike. I thought you were going to say dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that would have gotten a rise out of him as well. So Tyson's homestead, where this whole event took place, was in a valley called Matanuska Sasitna. Did you get it, guys? I think I got it. Which was created by glaciers and surrounded by three mountain ranges and a river. It is a remote area. It's northwest of Anchorage and 20 miles from the town of Squentna. He was flown in by aircraft in 2018 at the age of 28. The aircraft that was carrying him and his dog Phil and all his gear was unable to unload him at his homestead because of access problems. Oh my gosh. So it's very remote. You see, yes, the land is treacherous and very heavily treated. It is a large expanse. Denali and the other snow-covered peaks to the north 500 miles of hills and trees to the west, effectively far off the grid. So this left Steele with one option when he was dropped off, the option to drag all of his gear to his new home. He drug his gear in a sled-covered wheelbarrow. The path was not an easy one. It was marked with thick devil's club, insects, thickets, and bogs, and it took him one day to travel one half of a mile. And how far did he have to go? I'm not sure how many miles he had to travel. I think it was only a couple miles. I hope it was only one half of a mile just for the sake of that traveling. No, I think it was longer than that. And most of his gear was torn up from the travel because that's how harsh it was. I think that that goes to show you that clearly he has some ability to make decisions under pressure because he probably didn't know exactly where he was going. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but... That's kind of a daunting experience to be like, here you are, dropped off. Now find your way to your home. Bye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. He sounds a little steely to me. <laughs> steely dance? <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay, so he bought this 40-acre homestead, sight and seed, from a Vietnam vet. This Whoa. guy, yeah. And had that guy lived in this homestead? 20 or? years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this guy was Mike Loeffler. And he was suffering from stomach cancer. And so I think this is why he decided to sell his property. And it was a third of the going rate of property because he knew he wasn't long for the world. And it's probably hard to find the right buyer for something like that. Yeah, especially when you're so remote. It's not like, I don't know how you're even communicating with the world that your property is for sale at that point. That's a good point. So he had built this structure, as described before, and it was made of one by fours and plastic tarps. And this was to save money. And it, again, as Steele had pointed before, it's kind of a Quonset hut mm-hmm. a, a appearance. Apparently, it was pretty warm structure. And, he, and the sun would heat it up during the day. Um, so 
you know, it worked for this guy for a lot of years. Um, and didn't burn down, apparently. And previous to this, didn't burn down. Alongside the structure, there were some greenhouses, an outhouse, and a small airstrip for a biplane. So all of the supplies had to be flown in because of lack of access. And all these things were flown in by a biplane. So just to remind you, a biplane is a fixed-wing plane with one wing over another. Um, the airstrip was just a hop, skip, and a jump from the homestead. When you see some pictures of it, you'll see what I mean. It's not directly next to the property. Um, and I'm assuming that helicopters can't land in this area. They need a wider expanse than maybe a biplane could land on, which is why he had to be dropped off a ways away. Mm-hmm. So we'll post some pictures on the Instagram so you can kind of get an idea of this layout. Upon arriving, Steele and Phil lived in an outbuilding because Mike Lofler was still alive at that point. And he and Mike became friends, and many nights Steele spent in the company of Mike, who told him stories about Vietnam. Wow. I'm surprised that he stayed at the homestead. I would have thought that because of his cancer, he would relocate closer to a hospital, but I guess... I think he just knew he was on his way out. I think at the point at which Mike moved to Alaska, he was probably like, screw the world. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Speculation. He, he, he uh, you know, went to Vietnam, and I think that it changed him. I mean, I, I'm sure it changed everybody that went, but I, I don't know that he – when you move to a location like this, you move there for a reason. Oh, totally. So I think he had no intentions of being anywhere where he was going to get medical attention. Even with a stomach cancer. Even with stomach cancer. I don't know how he got the diagnosis. That's what I was wondering about. So the spring after Steele arrived, Mike passed away from his stomach cancer. And he must have had some indication that death was near. And he decided to pour Tide laundry detergent on the floor because he thought that it would deter bears. Which apparently, according to Glamping Camping, which sounds like a reputable source, of course, and www.trailspace.com, there's mentions that you can actually attract bears by um, laundry detergent scents and also dryer sheets is another thing. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's what, that's what I read in articles, and maybe Mike had some other reasons, but his last words to Tyson were, look after the shovels, do not trust the neighbor. And do not trust the Catholic Church. Isn't Mike the neighbor? No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Where's the neighbor? I'm not sure which neighbor he was speaking of because I was reading that the closest neighbor was 20 miles away. Oh. So, I don't know. I can't, Im- I can't imagine they saw each other often. Probably not. But I guess anybody that's living that remotely has some reason to question anyone living nearby. Because, you know, you have to be a little bit off your rocker to live out there. So you got to imagine that your neighbors are a little bit loony. We love you, remote Alaskans. Don't be offended. Don't be offended. (laughs) So after the death of Mike, Tyson moved back into the main home that was created by Mike, which was unclean, very smelly, and dirty. Aside from his bedroom that smelled like Tide. Oh, very clean. Yeah, he was able to do some work on the shower and clean the place up, salvaging what he could use. He geared down with Phil for his first winter. Tyson had some outside communication with his family and friends, but he said that he had a phone that he bought when he first went up there 
that was brand new, but it was a dud. It didn't hold a charge very well, and he noticed that even when it was on the charger, he saw the battery drop off. So he didn't communicate very much with the outside world. A call every few weeks or so, primarily because of this phone issue, not because he didn't want to keep in touch with his family or friends, but it did break a cardinal rule where he wanted to communicate weekly with his friends and family, just so they knew that he was okay. How often is he getting supplies? The supplies are not coming very often. The next supply shipment I think I saw was coming in the spring. Oh, so it's very infrequent. Very infrequent. And part of it probably is weather-related. You're not going to land a biplane on, you know, 10 feet of snow in the winter. Or even flying around the mountains, I'm sure, is treacherous at certain times. In a biplane, I'm sure. Yeah. The last time Tyson had communicated with any of his family was the night before on a family group chat via text. I kind of found it interesting that you can have such limited access to the rest of the world and still have internet or still have texting capacity. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I don't know enough about the access there to technology, but I just thought that was surprising a little bit. Something via satellite, I'm sure. Yeah, you're probably right. Ironically, Steele was reading Lord of the Rings on the night of the fire after finishing the chapter in which Gandalf meets the flames of Balrog. It's a Balrog. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's a ball rock. (laughs) He fell asleep while he was reading this chapter. Ironic. Oh, so he had a dream where he's being attacked by a ball rock and. I don't know. Wakes up to flames. I never read the book, so. You could at least watch the movie. I guess. I guess. (laughs) Back to the fire. Tyson wakes up at 1 to 2 a.m. on December 17th or 18th cold in his bed and he hastily makes the fire that changes everything you know back to balls of plastic fire dripping from the ceiling remember great balls of fire i'm sorry uh yeah that sounds terrible so this is another quote from tyson quote so i grab everything that is on my bed some sleeping bags blankets and i wrap it up in one blanket and i head out the door well no i don't head out the door yet i urge my dog out of the bed He's scared to death at this point, trying to inch away into the corner just to get away from everything. He's 110 pounds, so I can't carry him. I can just pull him and pull him until he understands enough to get off the bed, and he does. He escapes my vision because there's so much fire around, and the roof is collapsing. I get out of there. I get my stuff, and I head out the door. It was shortly after that that I went back in to get my rifle, that I realized he was still in the house. I tried to save him, but the flames spread like gasoline, and I couldn't get in there. What he meant to me was everything. Out of all of the things I was losing, I had no thoughts. I had no thoughts of losing my things. He was the thing that I wanted to save. What happens from there is too hard to relive. I just knew that it was done. And I went down and I sat down on the snow next to the fire and I was just shell-shocked. I don't know how long I sat there. Everything was so engulfed. There was nothing else I could save or that really mattered. End quote. I know. That's so sad. I know. So sad. Thankfully, Steele was quick on his feet, and when he realized he wasn't going to be able to stop the fire, he was able to salvage some of his food supply and some clothing, including a wool sweater, a down jacket, a summer jacket, long sleeve shirt, his rifle, as mentioned, and some food cans. Well, I'm guessing 
maybe the greenhouse was okay because the house, Quonset Hut, wasn't the only structure, right? Yeah, but I don't think there was any food storage in the greenhouse. The food storage was in the cabin. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was able to get out what he needed to survive. Um, Unfortunately, he dropped his phone on the way out of the house. So no communication. And also, back to Phil, he heard his dog howling inside the house when he was outside. But it was too fiery again. He couldn't go back in. And he felt intense grief. And he was trying to think of what to do and just numb. And as as he said, he was shell-shocked. And guess what next happens? His 500 rounds of ammunition from his guns started to explode like a war zone. Stop it. Pop, 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 pop. Also, he had a stock of grease and oil near his ammo box and a nearby propane tank. Oh, my gosh. Just all this fuel to the fire. And it was just explosions everywhere. Thankfully, he wasn't injured in all of this. Um, He was able to find Phil when things settled down. And he held Phil's head in his hands. And he was just all charred. And he just stayed with Phil until Phil was just too hot for him to be touching anymore. Which, again, is so, so sad. That was horrible. Why are you telling me this story? So after he was able to kind of get a head on his shoulders, he started thinking about his food supply. He became frantic in his attempts to put out portions of the fire with snow, and he did add some logs to other parts of the fire to stay warm, and he had pulled enough food out of the house to eat two cans of food per day for up to 30 days. So he's resourceful. That's a good starting point. Yes. He also found some peanut butter and some mayo, but he didn't eat the mayo because it was pretty disgusting. Um, all of his food had a plastic slash charred flavor, just like Ooh. his burnt down house. But he had no other option. He had to eat it. He ate the more burn up things later on. He saved that for the end. Mm. What would you do? I think that's not a bad idea just because if you're rescued earlier on, I don't know. I could see it either way. I almost would eat the Get rid burnt of the worst. Stuff just because you'd think maybe it would be more compromised to begin with so it wouldn't last as long. That's, that's a good point. But, but also on the flip side, if you get sick from it, then you might be looking at dehydration because of like throwing up and being sick over it. Well, the good news is that where he's located, he has so much snow that he can melt. So he has access to water. Yeah. That's number one. That's yeah. That's a good thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's real great, but I don't think his food supply, aside from the fact that he knew he needed it, it wasn't probably... The first thing on his mind. The other thing I was thinking about is he must have had some way of opening the cans. He did have a tool shed, thankfully, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Just his teeth. (laughs) Just his teeth. (laughs) When you're desperate, you can do whatever you have to do to survive. So during the night after the fire or during the fire, he, you know, went all night long putting snow on the fire and chopping wood and stacking wood and doing all of the stuff that he could do to, you know, keep the parts of the fire going and deter the fire from the other parts he didn't want to burn basically he was up for like all night long finally when he had the opportunity to stop he decided he needed to eat something and he decided to build a snow cave because he had no other form of shelter so he built this snow cave and he slept for like 15 hours yeah he was totally done 
Remember our story about Ed and Kelly? That was their first survival tactic to stay warm is to build a snow cave. So, mm-hmm. guys, put that in your back pocket for later if you're ever stuck in a snowstorm. Yep. So he slept a couple of nights um, in the snow cave. And then he decided to build a more suitable shelter. Back to the snow cave, though. After his first sleep in the snow cave, he awakened to find out that his fire was out. And he had a moment of sheer panic because temperatures at this point had fallen below 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and they might reach below 40 degrees. So he goes to the shed. He finds an, uh, a torch, a welding torch, and he finds four flint starters, but they're all frozen. So he's a little freaked out. He finally was able to get the torch going, and he set some magazines on fire that he also found in the shed. And he had to continuously keep this fire going because if his fire goes out, he's basically dead. At least, like you stated before, he was experienced in fire starting, so that is very applicable in this story. Yeah. Back to the fire. He can't really sleep a full night because he has to keep things going in this fire, and so that is probably always number one in his mind. And he knows that the torch is eventually going to run out, so how how much fuel does he have in this torch? It's only going to last for so long. Thankfully, he had magazines and books from the shed, and so that helped him keep his mind occupied and kept him awake. Eventually, he built a shelter out of lumber and some greenhouse plastic and some tarps, and it took him hours to complete, hammering ice-cold nails into the wood. To quote Tyson, quote, it's by no means a cozy cabin that I was able to put together, end quote. Steele told one of the rescuing troopers, Trooper Marsh, quote, I could still see my breath, but at least I wasn't suffering, end quote. As he was thinking about his plan, he figured that it could be a few weeks before his family became concerned, since he had that phone issue that we talked about before, and that infrequent communication with friends and family. The other thing is, he knew he couldn't travel far, because it snowed for three days after the fire, summing upwards of three feet of powder on top of the snow that was already sitting there, amounting to around five-plus feet of snow. Yeah, so his best-case scenario was really to stay put and hope that someone realizes that he's not in communication for a few days. Well, and the other thing to consider is remember when I was telling you about how he got dropped off and how it took him how many ever days to travel a half a mile? Yeah, and that wasn't even the worst conditions. That was pre-winter. He made a goal that if he wasn't rescued by day 35, that he would go to Donkey Creek Lake, which is five miles away, where he thought somebody was living. The neighbor who he shouldn't trust. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in this one scenario might be worth, you know. Going out on a limb. Sure. Another thing, like I said before, is he only had food supply for 30 days. Maybe he could have extended that a little bit further, but that was his comfortable rationing of food at that point. There was a lake a quarter mile away from where he was living, where planes could land in the winter, and he made a path to the lake to prepare for the coming of a rescue plane and to ensure that the lake was safe and frozen enough for the plane to land on, thinking someone eventually is going to call for a welfare check since he hadn't been in communication with his family or friends. And so it took him days to make this path. And I'm assuming he was doing multiple out and backs to make this path because he had to have shelter and he had to stay warm. Um, But also because it's only light for six hours a day. So that's another thing that would keep him from really going very far 
how are you going to stay warm? Number one, number two, there's super deep snow and his, um, snowshoes were burned up in the fire. So, I mean, there's a lot of obstacles to trying to get out of there on foot. He ended up creating a, a huge SOS out of the ashes from the fire and he had to continuously refill the ashes because it you know, it kept snowing on top of his SOS. And I'm sure with the wind too, I'm assuming there's wind, it's Alaska. Yeah. The other thing that I didn't mention before was that when he built that shelter with the tarps and the lumber, he built it around the furnace from the old cabin. So that was hmm. his heat source. Oh, he that's was, very intelligent. Yeah. But the thing is, there was nothing really to keep that heat in. And so he spent a lot of hours just huddled right around the fire with his body right up by the furnace. That was the only way to stay warm. So he said it only took the edge off the cold. And on the 17th night, it was very cold, so cold that he peed into a bucket in the night because it was so cold. And just a few minutes, it was frozen. And this was just a couple feet away from the stove. Oh, my gosh. Instant frozen. He also had a headlamp for the first 10 to 12 days, but the battery died. And he didn't have a map to know which way he should travel in the event that he was going to try to get out of there. He used birch bark to start fires and also um, as a light in the night after his headlamp died. He said that birch bark is a really good fire starter, which I didn't know that. So he's out there and he's thinking and hoping and praying and imagining that he's going to be found on Christmas. And he keeps track of his days using chalk. On the day that he thinks it's Christmas... He pictures his family opening gifts back in Utah, and he hopes for a flyover. He's just keeping his fingers crossed, but no flyover is to be seen. On one day, he sees jets flying overhead, and he waves his arm in the air, and he's screaming and yelling, but of course they can't see or hear him. They're just too high up there. And at one point, a moose walks by his shelter, and he wishes that he had one more bullet to get this animal, but all of his ammunition went up with the fire. One worry that he had was, should he perish, people would speculate that he ate his dog. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be horrible. I know. I think he just had that in the back of his mind because he was also just really grieving the loss of his dog. And he's all alone. That was the closest thing that he had to... Companionship. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was companionship. It was his companion. But- As time passes, one of his friends thought it was odd that he hadn't heard from him recently, and he called Alaska State Troopers for a welfare check, kind of as he expected. The Alaska State Troopers set out to check on Steele. He hears the sound of helicopter propellers overhead, and he comes out of his shelter, and he put his arms over his head to get the attention of the helicopter. They were able to easily see him in his SOS. How long had he been out there? 20, 20 days. Okay, mom and dad, if you don't hear from me for 20 days. Or maybe two. Or, yeah. <laughs> Assume that I'm dead. Please help. Well, if they're assuming their head. Then they're, they're not assuming, helping. Yeah, they're assuming that you're dead. It's too late. Okay, don't assume I'm dead. But, yeah, 20 days is a long time. Yeah, I mean, the good news for you is that you don't live in a remote Alaskan cabin in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and it's not seeming too appealing right now, Steele. He was rescued by Troopers pilot Cliff Gilliland and tactical flight officer Trooper Zach Johnson. At the time of his rescue, again, he had spent 20 days out alone in the cold in his tarp-covered hut at the most dismal part of winter. I mean, think about that. 
the whole time that he was out there, he's just trying to stay warm and how much mental effort it takes to do that and not go totally crazy or give up hope. I think it's also exhausting to be cold like that all the time. You ever been out in the cold and you come back in and you realize that your shoulders are sore just because you're unintentionally like tensed up? Oh yeah. When I was a lifty working on the chairlift. So for you that don't live in the United States, that's basically somebody that just checks your pass as you're getting on. I was so exhausted after standing outside all day long. I would come home at four o'clock and feel like I needed to go to bed. It was crazy. And I didn't even do anything all day long. I was just standing out there. So upon entering the helicopter, he apologizes for his smell and he brings his sleeping bag and some books. But not Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure about that. that one. Maybe that, that probably went up in flames. It probably did. That's sad. I'm still upset about Phil. I know. So after his rescue, he asked for a McDonald's number two with a coffee. What's that number two? I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the McDonald's menu. I know. I want to know, though. He obviously was well acquainted with it because that's what he asked for. And he wanted a coffee. I don't know if I mentioned that. And he also wanted a shower, of course. Yeah. I mean, if he's apologizing, that's so considerate. I know. I agree. Steele went home to his family in Utah and requested that they throw him a Christmas party. I hope they did. Yes, they did. And he was hoping, and maybe he's already made a move to rebuild his home in Alaska. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not really sure how he's going to get supplies up there, and I'm, I really hope that he got it built before lumber prices went through the roof. Yeah. So how do you feel about living in remote Alaska, Tessa? Um, not digging it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting lifestyle choice. Um, in some ways, it almost seems prison-like because it's not like you can go anywhere, you know, especially with the wooded area around where he lived. It's not exactly, it's not exactly like you can go out for a walk or something without ending up with injuries. And I think you have to be a true introvert, too, in yeah. the way where you're not starved for human contact after that much time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. sometimes I like my alone time, but not that much. I need to see another human after a little bit of time goes by. Yeah. It's gutsy. It's brave yeah. in, a, in a way. Because I respect that lifestyle for sure. Yeah. I just think, you know, even prior to needing rescue, you're out on your own. Like you got to be a survivalist at your core to be able to just live out there at baseline. Right. It's almost like living in pioneer times where you don't have a job. Your job is to survive. Yeah. In some ways, it's got to be a little bit refreshing. Yeah. Very simplistic in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I bet it's kind of nice to be disconnected, but I couldn't do it to that extent. You know, Tyson had a YouTube channel. He only got one video out before all of his stuff got destroyed, which is, you know, it's interesting that you can have a YouTube channel and probably have, make an income living in remote Alaska. And then what are you spending your money on? I don't know. That's a good question. Supplies. Deliveries. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for joining us this week. Um, let's meet up next week. Question mark? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Please remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, thecroxsurvivalstories.com. And I hope you have a great week. 
I would like to end on a quote from Socrates. Smart people learn everything from everyone. Average people from their experiences. And stupid people already have all the answers. Mm. Thanks again. Have a good week. Stay alive until next one.